really delighted to introduce our next little panel, and it, it comprises first um, Heather Tilly, who obviously is the co-organiser of this event. Um, Heather, after working uh, for some time in the gallery sector, came back to Birkbeck, where she did her PhD as a British Academy postdoctoral fellow in 2013. And from last year, she's now uh, she's a Wellcome Trust Career Development Fellow in Medical Humanities. Her first monograph, Blindness and Writing, was with De Gissing, will be out, I think, next year with CUP. Um, and her most recent work, um, her new project, examines 19th century cultural understandings of paralysis and neuromuscular disorder, from which this paper that she's talking to us today, a creeping paralysis comes. She'll be followed, we'll again to do the two speakers one after the other, she'll be followed by Roger Smith who is a philosopher and historian of science um, and, uh, and one of our most important historians of Victorian psychology. Um, He's located at the Russian Academy of Science, I, I think, Roger, sort of? Well, it's a political question whether you can name it in that way or not. But, uh... He lives in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> and he's an emeritus uh, professor at Lancaster. Uh, his recent book-length publications include Free Will and the Human Sciences in Britain, 1870 to 1910, which is in Routledge's Science and Culture in the 19th Century series, and um, Between Mind and Nature, uh, A History of Psychology. Both of them, I think, came out in 2013. Um, he's co-edited recently a volume of the Annals of Theoretical Psychology on, and this is the title of it, The Role of History for Theory Construction in Psychology, which contains the intriguingly titled chapter History of, I think, history of psychology. What for? Question mark. And he's going to talk to us today on the sense of movement. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for um, coming to our events. Um, it's already been um, kind of a fantastic day today, um, and hopefully more today. Uh, note to self. It's probably not a brilliant idea to present a paper and try and organise an event. Um, but, but there we go. So um, in this paper today, um, I'm going to take two novels by George Eliot, Mill on the Floss, published in 1860, and Middlemarch, published 12 years later, to explore some of the ways in which paralysis was accumulating new cultural meanings from the mid-19th century onwards. This marks the start of a new research project for me, which seeks to explore the manifold and changing ways in which paralysis was conceptualised and invoked by psychophysiologists, diagnosed and treated by neurologists, and experienced by patients. As a literary and cultural studies scholar, however, cultural texts and documents are critical sources to help me make sense of some of the ways in which these meanings are being negotiated, and which may also actively bear upon them as well. So my plan today is to examine the various instances of emotional and physical paralysis in these two novels in light of or in dialogue with recent psychophysiological investigations into the muscular sense and its disorders. My paper today, in light of this opening caveat, um, and partly in the spirit of this event, um, is experimental, in that I'm uh, asking questions and testing ideas, but I'm not yet completely certain um, of my outcomes and what aspects of, of this 
projects kind of are working um, better than others. So my thinking is still tangled um, in places. Um, and I was just saying to Carol, it's I've I think got used to presenting research that I'm very kind of familiar with, and this is really the first kind of iteration of this, this project that, that I'm presenting on. Um, but failure is central to my paper in, in another respect. But whilst I'm concerned with the importance of embodied identity, I also want to attend to the failure of the body and to reflect on its moments of collapse, suspension and destruction. So I'm going to be asking in what ways is a failing body expressive also of a failure of will, intention and moral culpability. For the characters I consider today, Maggie Tulliver and her father, Bullstrode and Lydgate, paralysis or impaired mobility is clearly linked to either moments of heightened mental and moral stress and compromise or an absence of moral consciousness. So in a sense, why the project seeks to turn the notion of the mind-body problem on its head and ask not just how emotional difficulties are made manifest on the body, but how the paralytic body is turned into a signifying system for mental and moral attributes as well. So Elliot was, as um, numerous scholars, including Sally Shuttleworth, Karen Chase, Rick Ryland, Mike Davis, um, and Peter Garrett, have drawn attention to deeply embedded in the scientific and psychological debates um, of the mid-19th century. Um, and lots of us in the room will be kind of very familiar with this. Famously, of course, her closest engagement with psychophysiological debates was through her partner, George Henry Lewis, a Victorian polymath whose interests ranged between literature, philosophy and science. And I'm going to use Lewis's writing on the muscular sense from his two studies, The Physiology of Common Life from 1860 and Problems of Life and Mind, published between 1874 and 79, as a useful touchstone in my discussion today. Um, but it was also conceived in dialogue with yesterday's reading strand on mind and body, um, and, um, and it's, it's partly in conversation with some of the readings uh, from yesterday as well. So, significantly for my discussion, Lewis, drawing in part on Bain's work, argued for the centrality of the touch and muscle sense in the human, challenging traditional hierarchies of the senses which have privileged the so-called distant sense of sight and hearing, Lewis stated that over and above the sensations derived through our five senses, there is a vast class of sensations derived through the muscles and viscera, sensations not less specific, not less important than those of eye and ear. Moreover, Lewis criticised the tendency for psychophysiologists to treat the brain as sole organ of mind, arguing instead that sentience was dispersed throughout other centres of the body, including the spinal cord and, connectedly, the muscular system. Even if the sensations derived from the muscular sense were imperceptible to conscious thought, Lewis, in part through Bain, argued that they played a crucial role in the formation and application of will, which was fine-tuned through repeated processes and response to stimuli. And I will wrap up our conversation yesterday that um, obviously there's a, uh, a longer lineage to, to Bain's thinking on, on the muscular sense. Um, that is also kind of being inherited there. But the, the key point for me is that the muscles were um, being understood as crucial to for formation of a conscious, ethical life, including its mental and moral codes. Um, so, Karen, I can just get the first slide up. So, Elliot turns Lewis's observations on the unconscious nature of muscular sensation somewhat on its head to articulate a model of accumulative wrongdoing by the Bank of Bullstrode in Middlemarch a character who I'm going to come back to and discuss more fully towards the middle section of my talk. Noticing Bullstrode's moral hypocrisy, she argues that he shrank from a direct lie with an intensity disproportionate to the number of his more indirect misdeeds. 
but many of these misdeeds were like the subtle muscular movements which are not taken account of in the consciousness, though they bring about the end that we fix our mind on and desire. And it's only that we are vividly conscious of that we can vividly imagine to be seen by omniscience. So because they're too subtle for feeling, Bulstrode imagines that such inactions do not count or are unaccounted for. Of course, they accrue damaging consequences in the novel. These subtle movements are not simply, however, analogous to Bulstrode's moments of moral oversight, but his body is also increasingly inscribed with the effects of his struggle to maintain a stable, coherent self, which are borne in and through the muscular system as nervous quivers, tremors, and, finally, collapse. Indeed, in psychophysiological discussion, the relationship between mind and the muscular system was not understood simply in terms of one-way traffic, that is, mind shaping body. Rather, the reciprocal effects of each, other, of each upon the other was questioned, um, as we noted yesterday in some of the readings from Morsley. Lewis later suggested in Problems of Life and Mind, um, and this is the series that's edited by Elliot after his death, that psychologists and physiologists should not simply be asking how the sensorium affects the motor nerves, but can the sensorial state be affected by the neuromuscular action? Mind was increasingly understood to be contingent in part upon the experience and functioning of the body, which gave new weight to neuromuscular disorders as conditions which might also reveal something about mental states. So in 1879, Lewis argued that motor anomalies had rightfully assumed immense importance in mental pathology and psychology. Um, and I haven't uh, come across references yet to whether Lewis was included mostly specifically amongst the mental pathologists that he mentions. Uh, I need to do a bit more research um, on this here. It could be a really obvious point. Um, but I'd be grateful if maybe later, if anybody does know that, whether they could confirm that with me. So for Lewis and for pathologists such as Maudsley, the paralytic subject offers a useful means of trying to assess the relationship between sensation and motor action in normal muscular sensation. Um, if I could just get the next slide. Um, and thus relatedly, the attendant states of feeling and emotion, as we see from this quote here. Um, so a paralyzed limb may be stimulated by a motor discharge that the muscles do not contract or if they contract, they're not so coordinated and coordinated as to permit the motion of the limb. There'll be no movement affected, there's no normal muscular sensation. So in Lewis um, and in, in Morsley's treatises, paralysis from both organic and what we might call hysterical psychosomatic causes was used to theorise an uncertain boundary between physical and psychological control. Elliot likewise employs paralysis as part of her narrative exploration of the nature and experience of embodied um, uh, uh, identity, and I think that they act as highly telling moments of the complex and ambiguous concepts of mind and body that she's negotiating. Uh, and yet significantly, and this is one of the questions that um, has come to start, I think these moments seem to be instigated less to hold up a concept of what normal sensation is than a concern for the inherent threat of bodily and subjective disintegration that can be posed by the traumatic effect of emotional stress and moral anxiety, I think. Um, so now I'm going to turn to a reading of, of these two novels um, before, before concluding. So um, to turn to Milan de Floss first of all. Physical and emotional paralysis are linked within this novel schema. Um, Maggie's father, Mr Tulliver, is the first paralytic subject we encounter, experiencing the temporary loss of the use of his limbs 
upon discovering that his enemy, the lawyer Wakeham, is responsible for his own loss of capital and social standing. And like later experiences, a form of paralysis described as an inability to move when she's suspended in a dreamlike state in the boat with Stephen Guest. The outcome of the loss of Tulliver's lawsuit is first reported through Maggie, who arrives at Tom's school to bring him home. Tulliver's loss of his money and land is recognised clearly as a form of failure within the narrative, as we're told that Tom never dreamed that his father would fail and lose his respective place within the community through bankruptcy. Yet, he swiftly also learns that, as well as the loss of the family's material possessions and comforts, his father has also experienced another loss, that of his senses, after falling from his horse. Maggie hesitates to tell Tom this detail, and for her it seems to be the most anxious aspect of the news. So Tom's accident is given prominence by being subject to two different perspectives. Following Maggie's report, which concludes the end of the second book, the narrative zooms back to the accident itself to tell us what had happened at home. The omniscient narrator filtering events for us here. Initially, upon hearing that the lawsuit was decided against him, we're told that everyone who observed Tulliver thought that for so hot-tempered a man, he bore the blow remarkably well. And indeed, he begins immediately to turn over in his brain certain plans to meet his debts and avoid the appearance of breaking down in the world. His capacity to form strategies to mitigate against the collapse of his interests is destroyed upon receipt of a letter from his agent informing him that a recent mortgage on his property has been transferred to his enemy, Wakeham. In half an hour after this, Mr Tolliver's own wagoner found him lying by the road insensible, with an open letter near him and his brave horse snapping uneasily about him. This check to his pride and will manifests as a profound loss of both his senses, the inlets of perceptive information, and his motor function. Brought home and under the care of Turnbull, the doctor, his senses restore in part. Yet his recognition of Maggie when she arrives proves too great a strain on his bruised and feeble powers, and he sank back again in renewed insensibility and rigidity, which lasted for many hours, only broken by a flickering return of consciousness and a reduction to a passive state of infantine satisfaction in Maggie's presence. Tolliver languishes, experiencing recurrent fits of spasmodic rigidity alongside paralysis. Spasmodic effects were coming under the purview of the reflex theory and, in turn, anxieties concerning the proper functioning of will. So, um, Roger um, Smith, in his study of the relationship between free will and science, towards the end of the 19th century, quotes the observations of an English surgeon, W.F. Barlow, who noted that surely volition exercises a controlling power and it's easy to conceive how muscles, under its influence, should be restrained by it from spasmodic action. The power of the will may act contrary to the nervous influence, which, were it not for its wholesome check, would throw the muscles into convulsive action on occasions when it does not take place. The key thing here is the role of the will in managing normal muscular and neurological functioning. As Smith observes, pathology joined with normality confirmed that the will was a power to hinder muscle movements. Tolliver's physical state is clearly tied to a faulting or loss of will, which can no longer restrain such spasmodic action. The obstruction of paralysis that he labours under is completely shook off, significantly not by medical treatment, but by the sound of a chest falling shut, 
as Tom, Maggie and their uncle Gleg retrieve the tin box that hold the beads to Dorcott House and Mill. It's the sound of the chest falling that acts as a voice to Tulliver, connecting him to his father and to his father's father. It stirs deep line fibres and calls him to perfect consciousness and recognition. This return to clarity underlies the psychological rather than physiological nature of his illness. But thinking about recent events overwhelms him again and he and wears out the sanative effect that the strong vibration of the chest yields and he falls again rigid and insensible, continuing to shift between intervals of consciousness which prompt irritability and causing again directly these um, episodes of spasmodic rigidity. Whilst Turnbull finds relief in this complete restoration for its proof that there was no permanent lesion to prevent ultimate recovery, the narrator is clear that Tulliver is now on a slow decline to death. The paralytic obstruction does, however, this will lose its tenacity, and the mind was rising from under it with fitful struggles, like a living creature making its way from under a great snowdrift that slides again and again and shuts up the newly made opening. There's a tension here as the paralytic obstruction is framed somehow as outside of Tolliver and at odds with his mind. But the narrative is also, um, I think, showed quite clearly how the paralysis is actually very much tied to his mental functioning and the certain relinquishing of voluntary powers. And certainly Tom and Maggie remain anxious that emotional disturbances would trigger, again, a recurrence of paralysis. Um, but instead, Tolliver seems to spot this for a depressive state. Um, in the remainder of his life and in the novel. So Tolliver's loss of economic property clearly finds um, a metonymic counterpart in his temporary loss of bodily and cognitive capacity. Yet this association consolidates the idea that certain forms of paralysis were symptomatic of a kind of failure or compromise of will and the proper functioning of conscious, purposeful action. So Tolliver's functional paralysis, to borrow from more contemporary terminology, prepares us for Maggie's later paralysis when, on the river with Stephen, um, as he urges her to elope with him, she was, we are told, paralysed, unable to either act decisively or make motion to remove herself from the situation. Here, however, paralysis is produced by a failure of Maggie's moral fibre, the result of a disconnect between her sense of duty and desire. Her motionless body speaks for her inability to speak and do at this moment in the boat, as she yields to Stephen's proclamation of suffering and away from that of the sense of others' claims, which was the moral basis of her resistance, as the narrator tells us. Unlike Maggie's usual trajectory in the novel, where impulse has bypassed conscious thought and resulted in an action, here Maggie experiences a loss of force and will, and communication between her thoughts and body breaks down. Paralysis also signifies the dispersal of will and conscious action in Eliot's Layton of the Middlemarch, published um, a decade later between 1871 and, and 2. So in the last section of my discussion, I'm going to concentrate on how the loss or lack of will finds important expression as a compromise to the muscular system in the Bank of Bulstrode and the Dr. Tertius Lydgate. Um, Karen, if I could just have... Um, but I couldn't resist talking a little bit about Featherstone, mainly because I'm... Now slightly annoyed that I didn't put um, a proposal in for Emma's conference on embarrassing bodies, uh, which is uh, happening here next week. Uh, so I just wanted to talk a bit about Featherstone uh, before moving on to those characters. 
So the Queer-Eccentric Featherstone in Middlemarch is an interesting um, figure to consider in this regard because he heads up an important subplot concerning the correct functioning of will and hereditariness as a legal function. But like the characters I'll consider more fully in a moment, there's also a clear association between the anxiety um, concerning his will and his physiological body. So his structure is called limbs, and this is an illustration um, from uh, it's the end of the 18th century of a man with, um, with dropsy. Um, his dropsical limbs make him look pitiable when walking and reliant on a stick to move, and he's largely bedbound. Featherstone has almost an excess of will, although it's not constant. He relishes telling Fred about his power to alter his will, and although his physical inability to move, despite a flare of nervous energy, means that his will is thwarted, um, he can't command Mary Garth to act for him by destroying one of his two wills that would have entailed um, Mary's uh, uh, lover, Fred Vincey, £10,000. Instead, of course, the majority of his property goes to his illegitimate son, Joshua Ring. So Featherstone is, is sure about the rightness of his mind, but unconcerned about exhibiting a perverse morality, then he finds his inverse in the figure of the banker Bullstrode. Outwardly, Bullstrode is a deeply religious and sanctimonious man, but inwardly, he's tormented by the circumstances of his own wealth, gained through the pawnbroking trade and concealing the existence of his wife's estranged daughter, um, Will Leathersnore's mother, claiming her inheritance instead. As the novel progresses, Bullstrode becomes an increasingly nervous subject as his past actions, embodied in the figure of Raffles, his drunken blackmailer, return to confront him. When Ladislaw challenges him that Bullstrode concealed his mother's existence to his wife, Bullstrode, unprepared for confrontation, shrinks and begins to visibly quiver in his face and hands. Lydgate later notes how his health was worsening, showing signs of a deep-seated nervous affection described by the narrator as hypochondriacal and threatening insanity. Lydgate advises Bullstrode that a mental strain may affect a delicate frame, as we read um, yesterday, more to advising in our workshop yesterday. Lydgate also draws parallels in his consultation with his own health, also lately similarly shaken, and this is a point that I'll return to um, in a, a couple of moments. Bullstrode's past actions do, of course, finally become known as subject to gossip and slander. He's confronted publicly at a meeting in the hospital with a scandal of having engaged in nefarious practices for many years. He's also tainted with the suspicion of contributing to Raffles' death in some way. Challenged to resign from public offices as a gentleman among gentlemen, he experiences a crisis of feeling almost too violent for his delicate frame to support. In a manner akin to Mr. Tulliver, it's the quick vision, the swift coming to consciousness, that his life was after all a failure and his professional reputation disgraced that shakes Bullstrode. Yet, unlike Tulliver, the narrator tells us how um, in, his, in Bullstrode's intense being lay the strength of reaction and that through all his bodily infirmity there ran a tenacious nerve of ambitious, self-preserving will and he does attempt briefly to defend himself. But after being ordered to quit the room and return for a full hearing, he rises to leave, but he grasped the corner of a chair so totteringly that Lydgate felt sure there was not strength enough in him to walk away without support. Mike Davis points out that the figure of Bullstrode presents an extreme example of the often problematic relationship between reason and emotion. He's simply a man whose desires have grown stronger than his theoretic beliefs, 
and who gradually explained the gratification of his desires into satisfactory agreement with those beliefs. Perhaps, like Maggie, this tension prompts him to purposeful inaction when he disobeys Lydgate's medical advice concerning Ruffles' treatment, probably hastening his death. Yet, as Davis also recognises, Bulstrode's ability to reconcile the tension between his desires and beliefs in his mind is ultimately limited, and the failure of the power of his reasoning, conscious mind, to retain a sense of individual coherence in light of these competing desires is made manifest in his loss of strength and mobility at this moment. So Elliot depicts his body in conflict, his collapse signalling that his will cannot fully command or control his motor faculties. Lydgate is also implicated in the scandal that surrounds Raffles' death, and his role um, leading Bulstrode from the hospital room confirms this in the mind, minds of other Middlemarch citizens. Yet the two men are also linked, as Lydgate recognises, by their experience of being nervous, um, by their experience of nervous and emotional shock, and their need to reappraise their professional standing. So Lydgate um, is, of course, versed in 1830s research research into the reflex arc and galvanic experiments on nerve responses, research which was um, still attempting to account for the relationship between voluntary and involuntary movement and the role of volition in the human frame. His own conscious will and volition is increasingly challenged by his wife Rosamond's separate ambitions. Their marriage is an unhappy result of his inability to have seen her as anything more than a charming feminine ornament and he articulates his growing disappointment metaphorically in terms of a bodily deterioration, although Eliot frames this more in dialogue um, with researchers on venereal disease in the 1850s and 60s. As he becomes aware of how his marriage may obstruct his career, the narrator tells us that Lydgate was aware that his concessions to Rosamond were often little more than the lapse of slackening resolution, the creeping paralysis apt to seize an enthusiasm which is out of adjustment to a constant portion of our lives. And later, in a candid conversation with Dorothea about his need to leave Middlemarch and to do as other men do and think what will please the world and bring in money, he tells her he cannot stay and fight for he is again afraid of a creeping paralysis. Lydgate's invocation um, of this term is perhaps the most metaphoric of all the instances of paralysis I've noted, as he seems to magnify the intense weariness of frustrated hopes to a loss of movement. Yet, its medical infections are telling. So the OED first lists the use of creeping paralysis as a noun in 1913 in W.A. Dorland's Illustrated Medical Dictionary, um, and notes that it's also another term for locomotor ataxia, which, as Henry Morsley described it in 1867, was characterised by a loss of the power of coordination of the muscles. It was also a condition which, in the medical text of the 1860s, was associated with Tobis dorsalis, the degeneration of the spinal cord from syphilis. Um, and I need to do a little bit more research on whether it was understood as such in the 1830s as well, although Morsley suggests that its um, precise symptomology uh, and differentiation from uh, more kind of simple osteomuscular feeling was, um, in 1867 he was writing, was quite recent to that, to that point. But again, I'd be grateful um, if anybody has, has pointers here. But what somehow in this term is an anxiety about the cost of sexual relations to the health and integrity of the body. Lydgate cannot fully comprehend his wife as a subject capable of being willful, and so he experiences the feeling, or not, of being paralysed by opposing impulses, 
of both wanting to conquer her ascent and make her submit to him through violence, and the hope he may ensure her concession through peaceful dialogue. Lydgate, particularly attuned to debates concerning the sensory motor system, frames his failure of medical ambitions through his disastrous romance as the progressive failure of his muscular faculty, uh, with a narrative um, laying a suggestion as to the sexual cause of this decline. So in this association of Lydgate's social and intellectual identity um, with his muscular function, we might recall Maudsley's text, Body and Mind, published within a couple of years of Middlemarch. We perceive then that the muscles are not alone the machinery by which the mind acts upon the world, but that their actions are essential elements in our mental operations. The superiority of the human over the animal mind seems to be essentially connected with a greater variety of muscular action of which man is capable, were he deprived of the infinitely varied movements of hands, tongues, larynx, lips and face, in which he is so far ahead of the animals, it's probable that he'll be no better than an idiot, notwithstanding that he might have a normal development of brain. What is, Maudsley asks, the human without the muscular sense? Rather than mind alone signifying rationality, the muscles, in their infinitely varied functions, are recognised as essential elements of mental life. Appropriately then, Lydgate, fearing the loss of his intellectual hopes, figures himself as a paralysed subject. Um, and I'm just going to um, briefly conclude with thinking some of the ways in which um, the project um, is kind of thinking a bit, a bit more widely, or is beginning to think more widely. So the aims of the project, as I've, I've mentioned, are to consider how such conceptions of the muscular system and its failures are connected to wider discourses of paralysis in 19th century culture, the status of which was changing significantly at this point of the century. So, in the same year that Milan Floss was published, the first hospital treating people with paralysis and epilepsy opened in Queen Square in London. And um, historians of neurology Stephen Jackner and Edwin Clark point out that desire for this specialist hospital emerged in part from Marshall Hall's researches on the reflex arch. Yet the hospital's founders also emphasised their aim to stop the placement of um, such patients in lunatic asylums, as had been the practice hitherto. How, though, this is one of the questions that um, I'm interested in, did paralysis continue to be associated with mental illness, illness, not least as a range of neuromuscular disorders were diagnosed in close proximity to so-called mental disorders? Um, and I'm thinking, well, obviously here, of Charcot um, diagnosed conditions such as multiple sclerosis, motor neuron disease, alongside his investigations into hysteria um, in Paris at the Salpetriere um, a couple of decades after the, the, the time that I've been uh, talking about today. So um, did the close proximity between mind and body in 19th century thought mean that culturally it was more acceptable to explain certain forms of paralysis as emotional? Um, or did it also lead to moralising forms of organic um, paralysis? Um, so perhaps another way of, of asking this is, where does symp sympathy lie in relation or in response to neurological subjects when there's a taint of emotional or moral causation to their conditions? Um, in early patient case notes from the Queen Square Archive, for example, details of an individual's family and character, their sexual and social background, proclivity towards alcoholism, whether there was a history of insanity, were among the first details that neurologists such as Ramsville and Bastion recorded. Um, and as I was preparing for this paper, um, I was reading the contemporary neurologist Suzanne O'Sullivan's recent book, Unimaginary Illness, um, case studies of a number of her patients who present 
psychosomatic symptoms, including paralysis and epilepsy. And O'Sullivan talks about how functional paralysis is now um, deeply taboo, uh, and as taboo subjects amongst clinicians as well, um, and recognises some of the shame that patients experience when, or, when an organic cause can't be traced. Um, so they're made somehow to feel that it's, it's their fault. Um, yeah, in a discussion of the researchers of Charcot, Janet, and Freud on hysteria, she also points out that neurologists and psychologists are still divided as to the cause of psychosomatic illness and whether there may be an underlying physiological cause that heightens certain people's propensity to react physically to emotional stress. Um, and I, it's, um, I'm just using O'Sullivan as kind of a, a touchstone again here. Whilst there's still no clear understanding of whether mind or body has sovereignty over the other, there is still, however, um, this is the thing that interests me, the capacity for shame to be ascribed to these quasi-neurological and quasi-psychological subjects. Uh, and one of the things I suppose I'm trying to think through in the process of writing and trying to think about Eliot's um, invocation and use of paralysis um, is... And it's not to say that, that, that fiction is kind of a better or, or more humane space to, to explore these, but there are certainly aspects of her construction and use of paralysis that I find, uh, I think, importantly humane and, and complex. Um, and I wonder whether there's a sense in which um, thinking through some of her, her depictions might caution against this, this kind of shaming through their understanding of the troubling and traumatic ways in which our emotional lives might be experienced physically. Um, but then perhaps there is also an element that, in which they express a certain failure of sympathy towards the narrative subjects. Uh, and that was, I think, actually the process of writing raised that whole other question for me, um, which is still ongoing. But thank you very much for listening. How long do I, I have? You don't want me to cut down. Uh, no, I mean, you haven't taken a little time questions at the end. Well, um, <clears throat> when I um, um, was kindly asked to, to come to this meeting, I, I didn't know that it would largely be a, meet, a meeting about the sense of movement. So I thought I had something to add, but then I find that I'm um, uh, um, in danger of repeating. Um, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to begin with a large point. Um, and this will not really divert from my abstract, but try to make clear what troubles me about recent writing on the sensory world and the relations of scientific psychophysiology and artistic culture. I, as the author of a general history of psychology, I'm naturally interested in how people conceptualise a project history of psychology. It is much more problematic than conventional use of the phrase would suggest. One reason is that the phrase commonly presupposes an implicit normative essentialism. Psychology is or should be one thing definable. As a social fact, however, um, psychology is a, a family name for a vast host of practices claims to knowledge, and ways subjective and behavioural of being a person. Even more, in the contemporary world, psychology denotes states or qualities that people have, 
or exhibit, and scientific, specialist, and public, non-specialist knowledge about those states and qualities. And this is becoming globalizing. Now, if all of this is in some sense psychology, then any history of psychology has to state what psychology it is a history of. I think this is very relevant to literary scholars and others in the humanities who want to talk with admirable interdisciplinary intent about literature and psychology, history and psychology, philosophy and psychology and such like. There is no specific field or subject predestined to occupy the second half of the copula until one decides to take a specific normative part of what is called psychology as real psychology. Now, historical work compounds the problem. It's necessary, I think, to recognise that psychology of whatever kind may be in the process of coming into existence. Thus, the subject may not be so much, for instance, literature and psychology, but literature and the process of psychology becoming a domain. There may have been, so to speak, no psychology there to relate to. Rather, literature was part of a web of relations bringing psychological activity or practices into being. And this, I think, is highly relevant to the study of Victorian psychology, especially in the earlier period, but even the later. So what I'm, I'm saying is that I think there must be recognition of the way, of the many ways it has been possible to constitute psychology. It is commonplace to assert, though perhaps less common to study in detail, though we just had an, an example with George Eliot, that the novel is a major site in Western cultures for the constitution of psychology as a discourse of human self-understanding and self-representation. Sally Shuttleworth, in her study of Charlotte Bronte, did address this too. And she opposed the top-down model of the spread of psychological culture from science to the public and located psychology in the everyday understanding of character and subjectivity informing and informed by literature as also by both domestic and professional medicine. It follows from this, I suggest, that talk about Victorian literature and psychology should rather be talk about Victorian literature making or constituting psychology. Of course, there are sometimes direct influences from someone who in a specialist sense at least is in part a psychologist, as when Meredith read Bain, this was discussed by Mary Banfield, there are sometimes, of course, direct influences. But if the topic is history of psychology, we might, with equal relevance, discuss Bain's interest in character as the outcome of the everyday constitution of psychological ways of being an individual. And Mike Davis has argued that psychology in George Eliot's fiction requires study as creative work in psychology in its own right. Though, as we've just heard and people have studied, clearly Eliot, with her partner Lewis, 
read deeply in contemporary psychophysiology. And the general point is clearly not just about Victorians. Now, I get to my topic. All this matters for discussion of the senses. The terms for description and analysis of the senses came into use in the everyday life and art and religion of historically specific cultures. There may be cases where the terms derive from systematic or scientific psychology, but, they are, but there are many cases where they do not. As the working assumption of a historian of science, I take the very categories of thought central to psychology, like memory, the five senses, mind, will, passion, intelligence, child development, character, to have complex histories long predating anything that might rightly be called a systematic scientific field of specifically psychological knowledge. My remit is the sense of movement. Now, this is a complex topic, and in order to say something focused, I'm going to concentrate on one area of movement about which Victorians wrote, walking or climbing in the mountains. I hope to get comment on what, for me, is new work, work I'm not finding it easy to shape. I'm seeking to characterise a form of sensory subjectivity, and by this means, a form of the constitution of the psychological, through a kind of literature where we might expect to find intense representation of movement. And this project follows on from earlier work, which is going into a a book, I trust, where I trace the differentiation of a sense of movement, or in Victorian language, the muscular sense. As a result of the earlier Birkbeck conference on the Victorians and the tactile imagination, which happily landed me in the situation where I now find myself, I published my argument that the history of tactility cannot be separated from the history of movement. I'm not going to go over this ground now. What is needed is simply to say, and this has been said before, let me put it as quickly as I can. In the English language world, reference to the muscular sense was established by the 1830s through the work of Thomas Brown and Charles Bell, spread by books like James Mill's Analysis of the Phenomena of the Human Mind, 1829, John Abercrombie's Inquiries Concerning the Intellectual Powers, a text for medical students, 1830, and by Bell's Bridgewater Treatise on the Hand, its Mechanism, and Vital Endowments as Invincing Design. Now, as discussed in the reading group yesterday and said again today, uh, Bain, in the senses of the intellect, placed activity at the heart of mental life and in the process provided a systematic reference point for discussion of the muscular sense in the English-speaking world in the second half of the 19th century. Much discussion turned on the evidence of clinical cases, and in this context, the London specialist on nervous diseases, H. Charlton Bastian, introduced the term kinesthesia in 1880. And that term was rapidly taken up. There was a considerable amount of psychophysiological research on the topic, and much debate about the nature and components of this sense. And in 1906, as we heard, the physiologist Sherrington introduced the concept of proprioception, 
helping to clarify distinctions between the study of the auto automatic unconscious regulation of posture and movement from conscious awareness of effort, active will, and the subjective pleasures and pains of movement. Now, in this summary, I've reverted to the kind of history of psychology that implies a top-down construction of psychology's subject matter, which I've just said is problematic. To balance this, I think we should recognise what North Americans call folk knowledge, or folk psychology, that is, everyday knowledge of the senses involved in movement and posture. In the work of steeplejacks and circus performers, in the arts of riding, in games and dance, in the enforced posture of schoolchildren sit up, or of soldiers stand up, uh, in carrying and balancing buckets or children, and so on. There's also simple walking. I've been trying to think about this helped by a spate of recent attention to walking, especially in relation to the immediate environment or landscape, and hence to the creation of a culture of space. This inevitably, inevitably recalls Wordsworth. Reading the prelude with its prolonged repetition of decasyllabic lines is famously like a long rhythmic walk. And of course, just such walking gave the poet a large part of his subject matter. This subject matter was at base moral or spiritual. The walking subserved seeing, understood as seeing what really has value, revealing the spiritual meaning of things, ordinary things, hidden beneath the surface of the distractions of daily life. Wordsworth discussed sight as a moral sense, however much his language described a visual world. And as far as I can discern, he paid little attention to the sense of movement as a specific capacity. Though he referred, for instance, to touch so exquisitely poured through the whole body. The large exception in Wordsworth is, of course, rhythm, the rhythm familiar to the long-distance walker. Now, rather naively, I, I, I rather think, I turn to literature on the individual experience of mountain climbing in order to find descriptions of the sense of movement. Now, the origins of um, climbing culture in the Alps have attracted a large number of historians and a large public audience. And here I, I thank Birkbeck's Alan McNee, who, through his thesis, gave me a way into the literature of, of alpinism and of rock climbing. <coughs> now, the alpine enterprise was underway in the 1830s, and from then until the ascent of the Matterhorn and other unclimbable peaks in the late 1860s, there was a golden age of pioneering ascents in which both local guides and English sponsors took part. The Victorian men involved J.D. Forbes, Albert Smith, John Tyndall, Lizzie Stephen, Edward Wimper, and many others wrote up their experiences, often as monotonously factual descriptions of the practical tasks of carrying out the climbs, of routes, views, snow and glacier conditions, weather, time taken, and a lot of other dull factual material. 
And these men that formed themselves into the Alpine Club, 1857, to promote and share their manly adventures. Now, what did these people feel and write about movement? After all, they undertook the most arduous ascents, sometimes ascending two to 3,000 metres in one continuous stage. Try it. They crossed smooth ice and jagged rock crags, they balanced on arets above precipices, and they walked huge distances, sometimes for over 20 hours at a time. But directly about movement, they said little. As all readers have discerned, the sense to which they are most alive in this, like Wordsworth, is in some sense a kind of moral sense. There are two large dimensions to this, which I don't need to discuss. The first is that the mountainscape, which the climbers reported largely in visual terms, with important exceptions, I'll note in a minute, this, their reporting instilled a feeling of the grandeur of nature, a grandeur felt also as a personal elevation, a higher or spiritual state. The second aspect of their stress is on the strenuousness, the determination, the controlled response to risk and sh the sheer discipline of keeping going. This exhibited an enhanced, embodied moral character. Climbing in in Alan McFarlane's word, fostered grit. The language of this second dimension, not least its patently gendered aspects, has struck many cultural historians. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, in spite of this... Um, large and dominant moral dimension. Reading attentively, as I'm trying to teach myself to do, it does seem to me that something can be said about the sense of movement. The first is that the very absence of any reference to the muscular sense as a distinct sense, let alone reference to the contemporary scientific interest in its psychophysiology, reveals the extent to which the muscular sense was part of ordinary, tacit knowledge. Everyone had some knowledge of how to balance, to keep upright on a slippery slope, to conserve energy going uphill by moving rhythmically, to seek even footholds. Mountaineering required such knowledge in highly developed form, but the knowledge was implicit in the ordinary activities of the body. The alpinists took a good head for heights for granted, sometimes wryly commenting on what would happen were that sense to be absent. Movement was not the subject of its own psychological discourse, though I want to say the bodily activity created the conditions in which, when such discourse became available, people immediately recognised it as addressing something that they knew about. On occasions, a writer made tacit knowledge explicit. A writer on mountaineering C.D. Dent, for example, spelled out instructions for making a steady ascent over a long period of time, calling on rhythmic small steps. 
There is one clear way in which mountain writers wrote explicitly about and agreed on the contribution of the sense of movement. Just by looking, just by looking, a person with little experience of mountains, and this is the person the writers call the tourist. The tourist has no idea of distance and no idea of the time needed for a mountain journey. It is, the climbers said, only by actually moving through the terrain, by the body going through the effort over time, that a person comes to true knowledge of distance and can plan accordingly. This made the muscular sense into a kind of measuring device, an embodied cartographic instrument. I, I quote from a writer, when a man has traversed the depth of a mountain region and foot and climbed a succession of peaks and passes, beholding each from the next and the last and other later to come or more, more remotely left behind, he has within him a scale whereby to measure the depth as well as the extent of the view. In a related way, Martin Conway, who wrote this passage and was a pioneer of Himalayan exploration, he related the aesthetic qualities of a fine panorama to the ability of the body to turn in uninterrupted motion. Wimper's first ascent of the Matterhorn followed from his conclusion on the basis of extensive climbing experience that the east face of the mountain, which looked to others to be impossibly vertical, was not vertical and could be climbed. And as Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who was also a climber, uh, was to observe, my body is not only one perceived among others, it is the measurement of all, null point of all the dimensions of the world. And Linda Kohler pointed out that Robert Louis Stevenson, who was not fit enough to climb, he, because of his, his, his medical condition, for him, he did not share this sensibility when looking at the Alps. He did not share a sense of the grandeur. Um, not having embodied the grandeur in his movement through the mountains. And, and I'm not sure where to relate to this, a comment by William Cohen, who claimed to find in Victorian literary texts, texts the idea, I quote, the idea that seeing can have the characteristics of direct tactile contact, thereby demonstrating the possibilities of haptic visibility. Besides this knowledge of space, in vividly pictured moments in climbing literature, there are a number of phrases which signal the forcefulness of muscular sensation in movement. The success or otherwise of large ascents, then as now, depended to a considerable extent on speed, to achieve which a person has to be both extremely fit and skilled in motor activity. The kind of expressions I have in mind include uh, from Conway, we forged ahead or we, pound, we went along pounding 
By pounding, he's referring to walking very fast without attention to each step. John Tyndall, the physicist, described his guide, Johann Brennan, as, quotes, a mass of organised force. And he said of himself that I clamped against the rock, galloped down an alp, shot down a couloir. There are a lot of these very um, dramatically uh, movement verbs. Leslie Stephen, characteristically, recorded how, quotes, we moved with breathless speed towards the top. His um, biographer, Frederick Maitland, and fellow Walker, wrote, he said, how, writing about Stephen, how is one to keep up with a man who strides like a pair of compasses over a map? As one of the notorious 40-mile-a-day men, on the tracks around London, which Stephen led after he denied himself, or was denied, the mountains, Stephen, quotes, had no mercy for Percy followers. This kind of language was manly in character, boastful, by design, hiding the effort involved. But it also exhibited vivid and surely often justified awareness of what the moving body can in fact do. Both Tyndall and Stephen commented on the pleasures of strenuous exercise. And Hereford Brook George, who one of the first to take good photographs above the snow line, referred, and I quote, to that restless energy, that love of action for its own sake, of exploring the earth and subduing it, which has made England the great coloniser of the world. He would vote for Brexit. These phrasings about forceful movement were, however, part and parcel of the whole story and, and not highlighted for special attention. Writers ran together physical and moral effort, and as historians of Victorian masculinity, character, and belief in self help have discussed, expected what they said to encourage readers to think of the physical and the moral as one. It is only writing on later climbers with their new techniques that link the language of movement on the mountains with dance, with aesthetic experience, more detached from moral assertion. Reinhold Messner, for instance, famous for spectacular uh, high-level high-altitude climbs in the 1970s. Not coincidentally famous for his speed, described how, quotes, climbing is like ballet. Every second of the performance is different, as the structure of the rock determines how I compose and choreograph the movements. This is absolutely not Victorian language. Then, there were hobnailed boots, heavy alpenstocks, and indeed long skirts. But by the end of the 19th century, when rock climbing had come in, it was possible to write that a really good rock climber progresses almost silently, whether his hold be good or bad. He so applies and distributes his weight that he neither slips with a jerk 
nor dislodges a single stone. Messner would have said that a good climber never has a bad hold in the first place. But by contrast, Stephen found not dance, but peace in movement. He described the sleep of the mind that may be enjoyed with open eyes and during the exertion of muscular activity. And he stated that the brain active during walking becomes merely an instrument for coordinating the muscular energies. Thought, that is, becomes indistinguishable from emotion. It's a very interesting passage, I think. Now, Alan McNee <coughs> referred to the haptic sublime, by which he... Um, by the haptic sublime, he meant a particular emphasis on direct physical experience and embodied understanding of mountain landscape. There was, in a sense, in Conway's words... A contrast between cold, strong reality, which is experienced by the climber, in contrast to, quotes, sentimental cobwebs and foolish imaginings. That is, the engagement through movement with rock is, is a powerful metaphor for engagement with the real as opposed to the, uh, the, the, the fantasies of those people who do not engage with the mountains, particularly the fantasies of women. That is, required close proximity to rock and space, knowing their qualities and dimensions, which was gained through contact and muscular exertion, was a way of separating those who are in contact with the reality and those who are not. Was this new? This is a question. Was this new, this perception? Kevin Morrison provided an argument suggesting that it was. Having contrasted Ruskin's visual relation and Stephen's embodied relation to the mountains. Now, how far that can be taken, I'm not sure. Certainly, writers describe touch, sight and exertion together contributing to perception of grandeur, feeling of otherworldliness, transport of emotion into something beyond oneself, which special moments of beauty, high above the snow line, created. In contrast, while actually moving up and down, the alpinists were frequently so concentrated on contact with the surface they were on that sublime feeling was absent. It was necessary to attend to the touch and positioning of the feet and legs at all times, uh, while doing what the alpinists, Victorian alpinists, called scrambling. Scrambling is indeed the worst word most distinctive of the Victorian experience of movement high on rocks, movement transformed into rock climbing only in the 1880s and 1890s. Now, I come to my, my, my towards the conclusion. Victorian description, descriptions of ascents also ran together the senses. The point here is not the claim that they asserted some kind of sensory synesthesia, but rather that the experience of climbing collapsed distinctions between the senses. 
That collapse, I think, is part of the reason for current reference to the haptic, why it's become so popular. That is, it's a code word for indicating some notion of the collapse of distinctions between the senses. Now, I want to use this aspect of the Victorian descriptions to highlight just how much black-boxed or socially inculcated construction went into and still goes into conventional reference to the five senses. Statements about the existence of five senses have been the norm in the West since the time of Aristotle. Yet Aristotle himself, along with numerous later authors, noted that in certain ways the sense of touch was different, and that it could be said that the other senses were varieties of touch. There is no time to go into this complex matter now, so let me just assert that there is no modern or transcultural agreement on the number of senses. Is there, for instance, a haptic sense? Or is this another name for touch? But if it is, how many senses are subsumed under this category? And they range in the literature, but they can be over 20. Charles Bell described the muscular sense as a sixth sense in anatomy lectures in 1815 to 16. But other uses of this phrase describe the sensibilities, sensory sensibilities of the bat, or more, com or more commonly, alluded to a sense that went beyond the senses, an intuitive sense, or later a paranormal sense, a sense like that of intuition. As the psychology, by which I here mean the description, valorization of the individual subjective realm developed in the Victorian literature of movement in the mountains, descriptive need created a language of the unity of the sensory world. And the unity of that world was a moral one. It was the analytic work of the armchair scholar and the laboratory that divided the senses. The five senses were the construct of those settings, the armchair and the, the laboratory, just as a unity of moral and aesthetic sensory experience was a construct of the mountain settings. There is, I conclude, a history of psychology to be written based in literature or in the kind of non-fictional writing on the mountains I've briefly discussed. But this may be a literature constituting a psychology that is not the psychology of the modern scientific psychologist, let alone the neuropsychologist, let alone what the neuropsychologist thinks history should arrive at. The history may be more in tune with the sentiment of the eminent psychologist Jerome Bruner, who, I quote, decried the habit of drawing heavy conceptual boundaries between thought, action, and emotion as regions of the mind, then later being forced to construct conceptual bridges to connect what should never have been put asunder. In a similar vein, the anthropologist of the senses, David Howes, wrote, the senses operate in relation to each other in a continuous interplay of impressions and values. They are ordered in hierarchies of social importance and reordered according to changing circumstances. What I sought to add in this talk 
is what everyone tacitly knows, that the movement sense is central to the unity of the sensory world. And I've tried to sketch one way in the mountains in which the Victorians found this to be so. Thank you.